You know, Christ had twelve apostles, and three he laid away. He said, watch with me one hour, till I go yonder and pray. Tell me who's that writing, John the Revelator. Tell me who's that writing, John the Revelator. Tell me who's that writing, John the Revelator. Wrote the book of the seven seals. Steve thought that was quite possible because George Harrison had written songs with a Hindustani classical music slant on the Beatles' revolver. I think you could do something like that because you have a style when you experiment with riffing that sounds kind of Eastern, you know. I pondered it for a while and put something together. The problem was that it was far more difficult than I imagined and it was clunky and somehow silly. It seemed that Vajrayana didn't really suit itself to this song form. Well, not in this way. I would have to look for some other way of approaching it. Pema Jungne had 25 disciples and he told them all where to stay. Said, climb up to those caves and practice. You'll hear me teach again someday. Tell me who's that flying lady? Yes, it's all girl. Who's that flying lady? Yes, it's all girl. Who's that flying lady? Yes, it's all girl. Wrote the texts that could be revealed. Steve nodded. Maybe you could accompany it with that wild thing you made, that massive great sitar thing. Oh, that, I groaned, that was a disaster. It was never any use for anything. It was just a plank of wood with an entirely useless attempt at a sound box. It had 16 strings, didn't it? Yeah, 28 if you count the 12 sympathetic strings and all with the clunky steel tuning rods I made in the metalwork class. The problem was that it would have made a better contraption for Robin Hood, as the strain of the strings practically bent it double. It would have been easier to fire arrows with it than play music on it. The sun was slanting in erratic cascades through the window of Steve's living room. It was an eerie effect because it intermittently transformed the room visually. It expanded and contracted. The light shrank the space and the sudden absence of sunlight seemed to make the room grow in size. As these impressions were fizzing between my ears, the white lady appeared and I sat there staring for a moment and then she was gone. Vic, Steve had been repeating. Vic, are you all right? Fine, Steve and my voice sounded as if it had come from some great distance. I could hear myself speaking, but it was as if I was not there in the room with Steve, and yet I was. What happened? Steve inquired. Your eyes looked as if, as if you weren't seeing anything. I really didn't know what to say. I didn't want to have to explain, 
but neither did I want to shut Steve out. This is going to sound weird, Steve, but I feel that I ought to tell you. You suffer from epilepsy, Steve asked in apparent anxiety. He'd had a cousin who had epilepsy, and so he'd heard things about it from his parents. No, Steve, I laughed. Nothing like that. Well, not as far as I know. It's just that there's this white lady. lady. I've been seeing her since I was... Since I was a baby, I suppose. She used to appear in dreams every night at one time, and sometimes outside dreams. Daydreams? No, I, I suppose I'd have to call them visions or, or something. Like Christian saints seeing angels, Steve asked, but not in a mocking way. I really don't know, Steve. I, I can't say what happens because I've never talked with anyone about them. If I was a Christian, I could talk to the vicar or bishop or whatever, but there's no one I can go to with this. I'd have to go to Tibet and I'd have to learn Tibetan and that would all be years away. I used to talk to my mother about them a long time ago. What did she say? You know, I really can't remember too well. I think she thought they were dreams. Well, some of them were, but some of them were definitely not dreams. I made the mistake of telling my father and he thought I'd end up in the mental hospital. It was really quite a bad time because I was too young to deal with him being the thought police or whatever. So does she speak to you? No. I shook my head. I don't hear voices or anything like that. She doesn't speak, but she she seems to, and this will sound totally weird, she seems to operate like some sort of television transmitter, and I seem to receive what she transmits, but it's never in words. I just know certain things, but there are no words for it. It's like knowing that you feel happy or sad or relaxed. I mean, how would you explain feeling happy if there wasn't anything you were happy about? Steve admitted that he didn't know. He'd just have to say that he felt happy and had nothing he could add. So was she there just then? I became silent at that point because I felt rather strange about the answer I was going to give. Yes, but only for a moment and then she was gone. It wasn't a moment, Vic. You were gone somewhere for a few minutes. I told Steve that it hadn't felt longer than a moment, but that time did tend to lose its usual linear form when I had visions. Steve sat silently for some moments and said, You know, if anyone else had told me that, I wouldn't have believed it. But I can tell that this is not made up, and it's not insane either. I just don't know what it is. I'm glad we can talk about it, or I'd have no one at all to talk to. I don't think you should mention it to your parents or anyone else, because it's just not understandable. Even I don't understand it, and it happens to me. 
Novik, I won't mention it. I can see that wouldn't be that wouldn't be such a good idea. But you'll tell me if it happens again? Yes, I'll tell you whatever you want to know, but it might not make sense. It doesn't make sense to me in everyday words. A lot of the time I just have no words for it. I can tell you what I see, but I can't tell you about the sense of meaning that happens. I mean, when I seem to know something, but don't know what it is that I know. This was sounding increasingly ridiculous, and Steve had shrugged in complete incomprehension. So I said, maybe it's better to put it like this. Why do you like camembert? Because it tastes good. All right, but what is it that tastes good about it? Suddenly there was a look in Steve's face that told me he'd understood something. Right, now I think I understand. I just can't say why I like camembert. All I can say is that I like it. I could say it's creamy, but so is brie. I could say all kinds of things, but they wouldn't really explain anything. I don't think my father could explain why he likes jazz. And the same for my mother with classical music, or you with blues. That's right. I just heard it one day and liked it. I could say that it was different and exciting because it was different. But now there's plenty of blues around and I still like it. I also know that I always will like blues. Some weeks later, I heard Mike Cooper play at the Farnham Blues Festival at the Bush Hotel and I tried to emulate what I remembered of his style. He'd come on stage with two national resophonic guitars, a tricone and a style O. I'd been hypnotised both by the way they looked and the way they sounded. This was music from somewhere else entirely, Africa and the Mississippi Delta, or from some distant galaxy where guitars were made of steel and cars were made of pressed flowers. The reversal was amazing to me. There were guitars as guitars should be. I told Steve about it and he was intrigued. We asked his father about them and he knew enough to tell us that we'd be unlikely to find them in Britain. I decided I'd have to make my own national resophonic guitar. I was given to entertaining entirely impossible projects, like being a solitary Buddhist in the home counties. So I found a wreck of a Spanish guitar that was going for a pittance because it was in such bad condition. I bought it from a bric-a-brac shop called Dawn's Bargains. I knew enough about guitars to talk Dawn down by one pound and ten shillings. I pointed out the bowed neck and shocking condition of the varnish. I pointed out the serious cracks in the soundboard and the dents in the sides where it had obviously taken knocks. I worked on it for three months and by the end of that time the beat out old nylon strung guitar became something of a wonder. It wasn't fit for playing conventionally, but it was just about suitable 
for playing lap slide vaguely like Mike Cooper. I decided to call it the Devil, after the way Devil was sometimes pronounced in blues songs. The Devil was a diabolical creation, not perhaps in the infernal sense, but musically. It was like a cross between a hurdy-gurdy and a dustbin. It did have, however, a body that was almost as perfect as a vintage Rolls-Royce or Bentley. This was due to the effort I'd put into burnishing the silver car enamel with which I'd coated it. The paint killed the sound, but that was compensated by the rattling of the contents and the shock of its visual appearance. The inside of the devil was crammed with ferrotype diaphragms which buzz crackled like crazy at anything above 60 degrees Fahrenheit. That was important because without activating those ferrotype diaphragms, the devil was somewhat restrained. It weighed about 11 pounds when it was all put together with the aluminium cover plate and perforated zinc. I drilled several hundred holes in concentric rings. The central sound hole was backed with a piece of perforated zinc and the result was visually magnificent. The word devil was etched into a copper plate through which the tuning heads emerged and the lettering, filled with emerald green gloss paint, was partially rubbed away. The result, therefore, looked a little like verdigris and gave it an air of mysteriousness. Devil was also etched into the tailpiece and into the brace on the back so that it all looked as if it had actually been manufactured, well at least to anyone who was not too familiar with guitars. My father had helped me because he'd caught me in mid-manufacture. I'd been working on the project in secret in the bicycle shed and he'd taken pity on me, as he had done with the Skiffle Junior back in 64. If I wanted a guitar that badly, then he may as well help me make the best job I could. He was good too, brilliant in fact, and he seemed to know everything there was to know about tools and abrasives. He'd been in the Royal Engineers and had a great deal of experience working with all manner of materials. For once, he found a good student in me, and I'd worked on my guitar project for untold hours. I bought a tailpiece and a bridge to replace the combined unit that was stuck to the body. Even though steel-strung guitars had similar bridge tailpiece assemblies, I wanted to create as much distance as I could from the reviled nylon-strung guitar it had once been. The neck was bowed, so I made a brace for it to take the strain of steel strings. Then I replaced the nut to increase the height of the action right down the neck. Once that was done, I could use my section of chromium bath towel rail to slide up those strings as if I'd been born in the Mississippi Delta. I took to playing harp as well and started collecting what would be the complete set of 12 so I'd have them in all keys. Again, I had to listen to albums to copy the style, but I was determined to be a blues musician at any cost. I listened to Little Walter 
and big Walter Horton. They were so interestingly different. And what amazed me was that I found harp much easier to play than guitar. I could actually get somewhere on an instrument like this. After some months of practice, I asked Steve to play a blues in D in order that I could accompany him on my G harp. Where did you learn to do that? Steve asked in vague astonishment. You're not little Walter, but you're not very far away either. Thank you, I grinned. I'm vicariously Vic something or other. Whatever something or other you are, Ron's got to hear this. And so he did. It seemed that I'd be playing harp with the Savage Cabbage Blues Band.